A tiger tamer who went to sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hello and welcome to the BBC History Magazine podcast. I'm Dave Musgrove, the magazine's editor, and coming up in this issue... You'd imagine that a serial killer operating in the Nazi capital in World War II would be the stuff of novels and of Hollywood films, but it just hasn't been picked up at all. The untold story of the murderer loose on the streets of Nazi Berlin. And there are prayers, recipes, uh, extracts from literature. He's, he's read something and he's thought, well, I'll, I'll jot a few lines down there. And prophecies, very popular in the early Tudor period. And also poetry. He, he fancied himself a little bit as a poet and there are a number of, of items he's actually composed himself. That was Deborah Youngs, who has been leafing through the pages of a 500-year-old diary. This twice-monthly podcast is produced by the team behind BBC History magazine, the UK's best-selling history monthly. We'll tell you how to get hold of a copy later. But first, let me hand you over to the magazine's features editor, Rob Attar. Thanks, Dave. Now let's look back to Berlin, a year into the Second World War. A serial killer was on the loose, using the cover of the blackout to murder a series of women on the railway tracks. For eight months, he remained at large, even though he was a railway employee. How was this able to happen? Historian Roger Morehouse has been investigating the so-called S-Bahn murderer, and I recently spoke to him about the case and what it can tell us about life in wartime Berlin. Your article in this month's magazine tells a story of a brutal serial killer in wartime Berlin. How did you come across this case? I came across it, actually. I was researching in the archives in Berlin for my book on wartime Berlin, and I was looking at various murder cases and criminal cases from the wartime period, and there were a couple of quite juicy murders that occur at the time. And then I came across references, quite a few references in police files to this name, Ogortsov, which I googled and did all the preliminary checks on, and found virtually nothing. So I went back to the archive and started searching for that specifically, and then found that this treasure trove of files of uh, interviews, interrogations, and each of the criminal case files on what we now know as the S-Bahn or the railway murderer. So it was a little bit of luck, really, because there's absolutely nothing on this case out in the public domain. You know, you'd imagine that a serial killer operating in the Nazi capital in World War II would be the stuff of novels and of Hollywood films, but it just hasn't been picked up at all. And, I, and I'm still a little bit at a loss to understand why that is. But of course, as a historian, it's a, a tremendous fine for me. Did it receive a lot of attention at the time? That might be one of the reasons why it's actually been kept relatively quiet, is that the Nazi press at the time 
for the obvious reasons, tended to keep it very much under wrap when each of the murders happened. And this was the winter of 1940 through to the spring of 1941. As each of those murders took place, they were reported in the most Spartan terms. So it would literally say that a body was found here or wherever with absolutely no further detail whatsoever. So it would be a couple of lines or a short column. The reason for that, obviously, is that the Nazis didn't like negative propaganda. They didn't like feeding that to their own people and they didn't like to feed it, if you like, as a weapon to their enemies to use against them. So they kept the whole thing very, very quiet. Would anybody have been aware that there was a serial killer on the loose? In the course of researching for the book, I've done a lot of interviews with old Berliners, and this is one of the questions that I've used in interviews, what they knew about this case. And most of them had, had heard about it. Many, many had forgotten in the meantime, but most of them remembered it. And they remembered the urban mythology that developed around it. They realised not that they were told in the press, but they realised that he operated on the trains, so certain train lines were seen as dangerous and, and you shouldn't travel alone at night and so on. So the word certainly got out on the urban grapevine, but it didn't come through the German press. Now, if I remember correctly, he murdered eight people over about a course of ten months. That's right. So why did it take so long for him to be apprehended? It's very interesting. This is the, the nub of the case for me. As you say, eight victims over ten months. What's astonishing also is that four of those victims were found within about half a mile of his home. Almost all of them were attacked on the German railways at night, and he was an employee of German railways on the very same stretch of train, of track, where the women were attacked. So it would seem to me that there's an awful lot of admittedly circumstantial evidence that points in his direction, and yet it took an astonishingly long time for them to actually even bring him to interview and start to see him seriously as a suspect. And there are a couple of factors that you need to bring in to understand quite why that is, first of all. The first one is that there was a veritable epidemic of crime in Nazi Berlin with the outbreak of war, because you've got various restrictions such as the blackout, which was a boon for Berlin's criminals. So there's a, there's a huge spike in robberies and burglary and everything else and assaults in that early wartime period. And at the same time, you've got all of those other new problems that come with the war and with rationing and with the black market and everything else. And all of these new crimes had to be investigated as well. So the crime figures went through the roof initially. At the same time, there's an awful lot, again, because of the blackout, there's an awful lot of accidental death on Berlin's roads and rail. And in that period when the S-Bahn murderer is operating, is one of the worst winters, in the winter of 1940, there's about a death on the German rail ways in the capital every day on average which is an astonishing number and this is just people stepping off the platform in the darkness or wandering across you know unlit sidings and being hit by trains so there's an awful lot of unexplained bodies around which made the whole job of researching and investigating these crimes actually much more difficult because it was difficult for the police to actually sort out and sift between what was an accidental death or even a suicide and which was a murder so all of that feeds in to the complex situation that the Berlin police were facing at the time. And then if you factor in another aspect on top of that, which is that the Berlin criminal police actually took on board all of the political and ideological prejudices of the time in a way they had to. So they were operating in an environment when they have a, a murder in Berlin, they immediately suspect Jews, foreign laborers, foreign agents. Anyone who to them is politically or ideologically suspect is automatically also a suspect for a crime such as this. So it took them an awful long time to actually come round to the point of view that actually it could possibly be an ordinary German which is what in the end it was. So the police were hampered really by the ideological framework of the country? 
Absolutely. You have to understand, in a way, that German justice under the Nazi system, the racial and, and social background and, and ideological background, was absolutely brought on board. And you know, there's a much more holistic view towards the justice system. So whereas in the modern Western tradition of justice, the figure of justice is even seen as being blind. is this blindfolded woman, if you imagine, on the top of the old bailey. You know, the statue is of a blindfolded woman because justice is blind. It can have no prejudice. That was absolutely not the case in Nazi Germany. Any suspect their background would be investigated, their previous convictions or previous uh, arrests would be investigated, their, their racial background would be investigated, and again, their social background. So all of these things were fed in, and in a sense, the idea of prejudice was absolutely central to the Nazi justice system. So you had the situation where you could have a crime committed by an ordinary German, and exactly the same crime committed by a Jew or a Gypsy or a former communist. And without doubt, the Jew or the Gypsy or the former communist would have a much heavier sentence than the ordinary German, because all of the other factors were brought in into the consideration of the case and as to whether the likelihood that that person would offend again, etc., etc. So the idea of prejudice was absolutely central. And in a way, what the criminal uh, polizei were doing in Berlin was taking that idea of prejudice to its um, nth degree because they were actually sifting out who they thought might be a suspect long before they even got to the interview stage, the, on the interrogation stage. They were actually thinking, well, you know, this might actually be a Jew who's committing these crimes, which is ludicrous, really, or even a British agent, which is even more ludicrous. And then finally, most of them agree that it's probably a foreign labourer, and it takes them an awful long time to actually arrive at the correct conclusion, which is that it's a German. Were there a lot of other murders taking place in Berlin at this time? Was this quite an unusual case? This is an unusual case because, as, as we said, he killed eight people. So he was actually quite prolific, even for a serial killer. That's fairly prolific. He also had six attempted murders to his name. So he was quite determined to write his name into the history book. There was a real spate of crimes in Berlin. And, and certainly in those early years of the war, there were quite a few murders. And it's quite peculiar. There's, actually, most of them are opportunists. There are men getting rid of their unwanted spouses, if you like. You know, they're, they're having an affair with a mistress and they want to get rid of their spouse. The blackout and the general dislocation of the early months of the war gave them a great opportunity to do that. And there's a couple of high-profile cases of that actually happening. But once that settled down, I don't think the murder rate traditionally what would be viewed as murder was there any higher than anywhere else at the time. So the Espan murderers' killings actually do stand out as being quite uh, important and unusual. Does this case give us an idea of wider picture of life in Berlin during the war? I think it does, because uh, certainly the importance of the blackout. The killer was operating under the cover of darkness at all times, and all of those, you know, the railway sidings and so on, were all very, very dimly lit, at best with a blue light. The blackout is well known to anyone that grew up in Britain during the war, and that of wartime Germany was supposedly much more strictly enforced and much more religiously followed by the people as well. So it was much more extreme, and he was operating in complete darkness, if you like, and that's obviously what enabled him to get away with what he was doing, to escape our Afterwards. And there's a couple of times where he was almost caught in a dragnet of police personnel, but he managed to escape into the darkness. So that idea of this complete darkness enveloping a whole city is something I think very few of the modern generation can actually really envisage. So that, in a sense, brings it home, you know, the reality of wartime Berlin. And also just that sheer prejudice on behalf of the authorities. They had a, a city which had many tens of thousands of foreign laborers in it, for example, by 1940, who were viewed very much as second-class citizens, and in this case, of course, were viewed as the prime suspect. That also gives you an insight into the rampant prejudice that there was in Berlin's political life. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, 
the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. That was Roger Morehouse. His book, Berlin at War, will be published by Bodley Head next year. And you can read Roger's feature in the May issue of the magazine. Now, this is an Anglo-Saxon special issue with the glorious Sutton Hoo helmet gracing the cover. You can buy the magazine in all good news agents in the UK for just £3.60, or even better, you can save money and ensure you never miss an issue by subscribing. We have great subscription deals available whether you're in the UK or overseas. Just go to our website, bbchistorymagazine.com, for details. Now, let's go on to Tudor Daily Life. BBC History Magazine Deputy Editor Sue Wingrove has the story. The Cheshire landowner Humphrey Newton lived his life largely during the reigns of the early Tudors, Henry VII and Henry VIII. Now, while surviving records and archives tell us a great deal about the Henrys and about all the other powerful and wealthy figures of this period, we know relatively little about the rather humbler class to which Newton belonged. Historian Deborah Youngs, lecturer at Swansea University, has recently written a biography of Newton and writes about him in the latest issue of the magazine. Earlier I spoke to Deborah about this Tudor gentleman and about the fascinating notebook that he compiled in the early 16th century. So your feature in the magazine is based on a 16th century commonplace book. Uh, Perhaps you could start by just telling us what is a commonplace book? Well, basically, it's a type of uh, notebook of of very miscellaneous um, items. Um, There's a whole range of different material that you can find in commonplace books, both private and business items, that were gathered together over a period of time and for someone's own personal use. So it's not something that's planned from the outset or a professional uh, compilation. Um, It's something that uh, someone would have, have compiled um, over, a, over a period of time, um, he, and it usually is a he, would have perhaps come across uh, a poem or come across a piece of literature or found something in his ordinary business uh, or daily life and thought, oh, you know, I'll, I'll make a note of that. So those commonplace books that we have from the 15th and uh, 16th century are quite personal items and reflect the personality of the, of the compilers. Now, introduce us briefly to Humphrey Newton, whose commonplace book it was. Um, You've mentioned that he lived in Cheshire. Well, he was born in October 1466 and died in in Cheshire in March 1536, so just short of his 70th birthday, which is a very good age um, for the the period. So his, his life really spans the late 15th, early 16th century, times of upheaval. He's, he's born into um, England that's suffering the civil wars known as the Wars of the Roses, and he dies just as Henry VIII and his um, ministers are about to dissolve uh, the monasteries, so quite a, a swathe of, of history. Um, his family home, his main estate, is in a place called Newton. Um, he ho- owns a fair amount of land, but he's pretty much... Um, I suppose, overshadowed by wealthier neighbours. Um, but in 1490, he marries um, a woman called Ellen Fitton, um, who's the co-heiress of a much larger estate, which is about three miles west of Newton, called Pownall. 
um, which is based in Wilmslow. Um, and there, um, Henry um, Humphrey um, eventually goes to live in, in 1506, 1507. So he, he then has a much larger um, estate. But nevertheless, it's quite a small neighbourhood in that sort of northeastern um, corner of Cheshire. Okay, so he he compiled his his uh, commonplace book there, uh, sometime between the fourteen nineteens and the fifteen twenties. Yes, that's right. Um, now, if we were to have a look through the book, what would we see? Uh, what are the pages like, and what did he put in it? Well, I mean, the, the manuscript itself contains pages of all different um, sizes, but largely um, they are paper of just just slightly bigger than A4 size. So it's not something he's going to be carrying around with him. It's going to be a book that's probably, you know, he leaves at Newton or um, Powell. It's written largely in English, although he, he does write um, um, some entries in Latin and French. So like many of the educated in um, England at the time, he is trilingual. Um, on every page, well, you're going to find something different. Some pages are filled, crowded even with writing, you know, very close to the margins, lots of crossings out, things that he's rushed to write. But other pages are going to be quite neatly laid out, you know, things that he's taken his time over, perhaps he's, you know, drawn in margins, you know, put ruled lines in. Um, so, as I say, you're going to find different things on, e on each page. Um, it's going to be a very great mix of, of items that you'll see. Um, there are estate accounts there, servants' wages, um, purchases and sales that he's made, um, family records, land deeds, um, many legal notes that he's, he's jotted down. Um, there are prayers, recipes, uh, extracts from literature. He's, he's read something and he's thought, well, I'll, I'll jot a few lines down there. Um, prophecies, very popular in the early Tudor period, and also poetry. He, he fancied himself a little bit as a poet, and there are a number of, of items he's actually composed himself. So, as I say, quite a mix there. Yes, quite a mix. Um, so what's your favourite page from the book? Um, well, it's quite difficult to, to narrow it down, but I think um, partly because your readers will be able to see it um, on uh, the um, article is, is the page containing the Sacred Heart, which is this very large red heart in the centre of the page. It's now on the last um, page of Humphrey's uh, manuscript. And it's very eye-catching, as it was intended uh, to be. Um, and I like it, I think, because what strikes me is the care with which Humphrey has taken in drawing the heart, colouring it in, um, and all the other details that he's, he's placed on the page. And it's meant to be a symbolic representation of the crucifixion. Um, you can see the the crown of thorns above the heart. He's coloured in these very dark um, black holes, which are meant to be to represent the nails that were put through uh, Christ's feet um, and his hands. And it reminds us really of how central Christianity, religion was um, in Humphrey's life, that however busy um, it got, however many things that drew his attention, um, you know, it was a reminder really that you know this is this is where the heart is. You know, this is this is what's important. So I like it, I think, for reflecting that sense of of the detail, but also what he thought was important in his life. Yes, that's a, it's a beautiful page, isn't it? Um, and he's taken a, a great deal of care. So what does this um, book tell us about his, his daily life, his family and his work, for example? Well, the best items to look um, for that are the accounts, which really highlight the rhythms of his daily life. Um, they show that he had a very hands-on approach to estate management. I mean, obviously, he, he had servants um, in his employment, but he keeps an eye on them, 
you know, he, he sort of, you know, looks at, at what they do. Um, he, you know, he's careful in terms of how much money he gives them, you know, when they should have his wages. But on several occasions, it's also very clear that he's out in the field surveying their work, you know, the, the building work that's going on, the land management. So although, you know, there is an estate structure there, he has of, officials that can manage the, the daily uh, running of the estate, he's keeping a very close eye on these people. His wife is also very important in this regard. Gentlewomen were also household managers, and we glimpse her organising the household alongside her husband, paying wages to servants, paying tradesmen. And there's a nice example where she pays the dyer who has just dyed her sister-in-law's uh, sister-in-law's uh, wedding dress violet. So you know, the great family occasion, and she's obviously there um, helping to organise it. Um, but the book also shows Humphrey um, away from home. So um, there are times when he has to be out and about on business. Um, he's a court holder, several uh, local manor courts, and that um, takes him away. He travels to Chester. He also travels to London on the odd occasion relating to legal activities that he's involved in. So the, the sense of daily family life is very much focused on the estate, but he also, as a busy um, landowner, he's also taken away from from that family home. It's also quite a quite an intimate record, um, and you must have built up quite a picture of the man who produced this commonplace book. What sort of person do you think Humphrey was? I think he was a family man, um, and he did have a large family. His his poor wife had eleven children in very sort of close um, succession. Um, like all gentry, I mean, you need to have children, you need to have sons in order to ensure the continuation of the line. So, you know, there is a there is a um, a strong motive to have, you know, as many children um, as possible, particularly in a, in a period of high infant mortality. But there does seem to be um, affection there. He's he's concerned with his wife's um, health, and he has good relationships um, with his son. So, I think you know there is that family affection there. Um, he's also someone who has a very bureaucratic mind. He he has this desire to organise. Probably this is a result of the fact that he is a court holder and he's also a legal advisor. He's a very good record keeper who values detail. You know, he wants his life sorted out and you can see it the way in which he, he notes everything um, down. Um, he's also a very tenacious person, I think, um, and he wants what he feels is his family's right. You know, he, he is somebody who who um, goes to court over land that he feels you know, should belong um, to the family. He's not a violent man. We do get examples of quite violent um, altercations between um, gentle uh, land, gentlemen, landholders in this period. But he seems to fight his way through legal documents and through legal courts. Um, so you get that side of him. But I also think as I mentioned before, that he fancies himself very much as a poet. He's a cultured man. He likes to be a creative man. Um, so he tries to write poetry. He tries to do those um, kinds of drawings. Um, he, there's one example where he's trying to learn how to string a harp. Um, so I think that um, he's also has this creative side of him. He's also obviously created the commonplace book um, itself. Um, so, yes, we can sort of see him out in the fields overlooking his workers. But I think there's also a man who would have been sat inside, perhaps, trying to work out you know, how to rhyme this with that word. You know, Indeed. And 
Um, you've described Humphrey as a, a gentleman, and one of the things you touch upon in your feature, but go into more thoroughly in your book, is the concept of gentry culture, um, which was very important at this period, I gather. Could you define what gentry culture is? Well, when I'm using it, I'm really meaning um, the sort of lifestyle, the code of conduct that helped to distinguish the gentle of society from those uh, below them. Um, historians use the word um, gentry for this period as a collective term for those uh, men and women who would have been described as, as a knight, an esquire, um, as gentlemen or gentlewomen. And why they gained those descriptions because of the amount of land they held or the wealth owned or their ancestry. Society would also have been able to identify them, identified Humphrey as a gentleman because of his appearance, his behaviour, his attitudes, a whole sort of you know, cultural experience of being um, a gentleman. And these you know, men and women were very conscious of their distinction. And so they're outwardly you like, showing themselves um, to be gentle. Humphrey, for instance, has a short treatise on how to serve a lord, which describes you know, the kinds of food that need to be presented, the kind of way that servants uh, needed to act within a lord's um, household. So there's a sense in which it's not just about being um, a gentleman, it's just showing yourself off being you know, of that particular class. And finally, um, Humphrey and his wife Ellen were married for 46 years, which is a long time by any standards, but they died within six weeks of each other. Um, and this belief in status was even important to them in their burial plans, wasn't it? Yes, I mean, tombs were made um, for both Humphrey and Ellen Eaton, and you can still see them at St. Bartholomew's Church. Um, in Wilmslow today, they're in the North Wall, and um, they're de they're depicted in in sort of effigy form, um, and they're under two um, separate canopies. So they're not presented side by side in the way that some uh, monuments are, but top to toe um, in effect. Now, the fact that they have those tombs in itself is a status symbol because only certain um, you know members of society would have been able to afford. Um, such tombs. But they also display um, gentry status in, in other ways. For instance, the clothing that they wear. Humphrey is, is de um, depicted in a fur-lined cloak that comes to his, you know, right down to his feet, and that would have been originally coloured, you know, bright um, red. Um, Ellen um, is also uh, an heiress, and that distinction is marked by the fact that she's shown wearing a purse on her skirt, which showed that, you know, she was the one with the wealth um, and the money. Um, and her status is quite interesting because her effigy is closest to the east end of the church, closest to the most important part of the church where the high altar would be. And in a patriarchal society, you normally would expect the man to be closest to the most important part of the church. But the fact that she's there suggests that there's a recognition that it was through her that the Newtons and Humphrey Newton gained you know, the Powell estate in, in Wilmslow. That was Deborah Youngs talking to Sue Wingrove. You can find out more about Humphrey Newton in Deborah's feature in the May issue of BBC History magazine. And her book, Humphrey Newton, An Early Tudor Gentleman, is published by Boydell and Brewer. Now, it's time for us to have a quick look at the pick of the history books that have come out this month. Sue... What are the two best books that you've seen this month? A difficult choice. We've reviewed a dozen books um, in this issue. But um, first up, I think it has to be The Morbid Age by Richard Overy, which is published by Alan Lane. This is a study of Britain between the First and Second World Wars. 
And why would I want to read that? Well, you should read it because it's a new take on the mood of the nation between the wars and it's by one of Britain's finest historians. His central argument is that the horrors of the First World War had confirmed that civilization was fractured. Overy claims that the ruling sensibility of the age was a morbid culture of decay. Um, And it was this pessimistic outlook which helped people believe that by 1939, war was more or less inevitable. And what's your second choice? Okay, number two is a paperback, Special Operations in the Age of Chivalry, 1100 to 1500, by Yuval Noah Harari, and this is published by Boydell. And it's about dirty tricks in medieval warfare. And what's good about this one? Well, you should read it because it recounts six exciting episodes that feature bribery, trickery, treachery and low-down dirty tactics. It might just make you revise your perceptions of the age of chivalry. Sounds like a good read. Thanks, Sue. And of course, you can buy these titles via our BBC History bookstore. Full details of this are on the website at bbchistorymagazine.com. For all our book reviews, plus our features on Nazi Berlin, Tudor Gentlemen, the Anglo-Saxons and much more, do look out for our May issue. And finally, we'd love to get your feedback on the podcast and the magazine. To help us canvas your views, we've set up a reader's panel. It's easy to become a panellist. All you have to do is go to http colon forward slash forward slash panel dot bbcmagazines.com and follow the instructions. That's it. Thanks for listening. Next month, we'll be talking about D-Day with Anthony Beaver, plus investigating the Knights Templars, the Suffragettes and Thomas Paine.